from the Salvation Army National Headquarters, this is the Fight for Good Podcast. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Fight for Good Podcast. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Tim Foley, once again, broadcasting very comfortably in my studio known as my office basement. So it's just a lovely, cozy place for me to be. And looking out my window, if I had one, I would see my editorial director, Mr. Jeff McDonald, off to the west there. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you. Grateful for this opportunity. Great to be able to speak with you and the people we have in these podcasts. Well, today's podcast is a very special one. Uh, Jeff and I have been able to interview the authors of the book, The Courage to Suffer, uh, Daryl and Sarah uh, uh, Van Tongren. Just a a lovely couple who have uh, written a very cognitive book uh, in regards to how to to really kind of get your head around this idea of um, suffering. Yeah, I mean, they take a rather high-end view of uh, their scholarly work. But for me, it's like um, somebody like me who says, you know what? Life just sometimes stinks. And uh, I think they're speaking into that (laughs) on a a practical level in some ways. So, yeah, I I thought they were very engaging. Yeah, I've I've been struggling. Um, uh, Obviously, we're we're moving into a, a month and a half of, of this whole COVID-19 uh, crisis here. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy, uh, it, depending on whatever our circumstances are. And we know that some of our listeners have lost their jobs. Uh, some people have uh, lost loved ones to this horrible virus, um, which has, at this point in time, has no cure uh, there's a lot of angst and frustration and uh, differing of, of political opinions that continue to arise in all of this. And yet we're, you know, we're dealing with isolation. And um, I, I think both of them just have some really good sage advice uh, for anybody that would take a few moments to listen to this podcast and, and how to kind of like overcome and, and really how to find courage in, in these moments of suffering. Hmm. Yes. Uh, they write this book from the perspective of sometimes our beliefs, our identity, who we understand who we are, uh, really is uh, contradicts reality. And they're trying to help us people through that by reconciling how, how we see ourselves and how we can really cope especially in this new environment of the caused by the coronavirus. And now here's Jeff in my interview with Daryl and Sarah. When I first, uh, when I read your book, The Courage to Suffer, A New Clinical Framework for Life's Greatest Crises, I thought right away of a uh, scripture that I read just the other day in 1 Peter it's uh, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. It says, In this you great, greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, 
that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That just struck me in that you refer in your book to almost the necessity of suffering, which is certainly um, so valid for today. Um, You refer to existential suffering as coming to grips with the many disappointments and tragedies in life that we face. So how can we guard against losing our sense of meaning as we confront this unprecedented crisis of the coronavirus? Yeah, so that's a, I mean, that's a great question. And, and to your, your first point in that, um, I think suffering really is an inherent part of life. And it's part of the work that we have to do to acknowledge that we all suffer and that we all grieve. And that's just kind of the natural rhythm of, of the way that uh, we all experience life. And when we do suffer, we are going to question our meaning. We're going to question not only the meaning of, of the situation. So why are we experiencing this pandemic? Why is this happening to us? Why now? We also have to struggle to maintain a sense of meaning from all of the things in our life that gave us meaning that may not be as readily available anymore. Things such as meeting, going out and meeting with friends or uh, going into work. And so there are some practical things that we can do. I think one of the first places we have to start is we have to start with acceptance. We have to start with accepting the reality that we are suffering, that although we don't want to be, although we don't want the restrictions that are placed on us, although we don't want what many people are viewing as an inconvenience, this is the reality of our life and we have to start with acceptance. And that's really hard. It's hard to accept something that you don't want. I think that's that's sort of what I think we're all faced with right now. And I think that's what suffering does is it's when we are presented with something we don't want to be true and we often fight it with denial. I mean, it's a part of us as humans. Um, we tend to want to ignore our own suffering or even the suffering of others. And I think we're presented with this opportunity with this pandemic that we're going through to actually name what it is and look at the suffering, both of ourselves, but also of those around us and then ultimately the world. We're really going through the, the steps of, of grief, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of, part of this suffering that you experience hits on those stages of grief, you know, and we, we, as, as a therapist, we talk a lot about um, those often aren't linear they're very circular um, and different cycles. And I know we, we live in Michigan, and so we're just starting week six of isolation. And so I've been still seeing clients through telehealth, but I've been very fascinated and, and sort of in it with all my clients. It's sort of this unique thing where often when we experience suffering, it's, it's our own story and it's our own unique way of seeing the world. And yet, here's this thing we're all going through collectively. And so I'm grieving right along with them and to see us sort of go through it in a circular manner where there's some weeks where, yeah, it's easier to accept and we found our routine. And then other weeks where it just feels really, really hard. Well, for those of us who have strong denial tendencies, (laughs) (laughs) we can can work our way through it. (laughs) 
until it comes to the point where you can't anymore. But just give some context. So the Salvation Army uh, now across the country is just mounting an incredible response to help people, you know, um, deal with physical needs, um, supplying them food and, and water. In addition to that, there were creating shelters to help homeless people. Um, at the same time, the army does offer emotional and spiritual support and guidance as part of its ministry on the front lines. And the army works typically, normally, with those who are most vulnerable. So those populations, how devastating this must be for those who are already so vulnerable you know, and are forced to cope with this situation. How would you speak to that? Well, I was going to, I was, as you were talking, I was really thinking about the Salvation Army's work in all of this is often that of acceptance. If we, I think that's is the beautiful side, right? So denial says, oh, everything's fine. We'll be fine. We're going to get through it. Nothing's going to change. <laughs> Let's go back to normal. But what the Salvation Army is doing by organizing resources and helping the most vulnerable, you're sort of saying, look, this is, this is really affecting people. And I think to those that are the most vulnerable, they're the ones that are the most acquainted with suffering. Uh, this is not the first time they've ever suffered. Um, this is not the first time that they've ever experienced pain, loss, crisis. And so my heart goes out to them too. I think we have a responsibility to name that and validate that and to provide comfort in that too. I was just going to say, you know, one thing that we, uh, we mentioned in the book is that everybody suffers. Um, but sadly suffering doesn't always fall equally among all of us. Right. And sometimes it can fall disproportionately most on, on the disadvantaged and the marginalized. And the work that you're doing is, is so key in, uh, in helping alleviate some of that suffering and bringing real tangible support, actual physical uh, relief, emotional relief uh, to those folks. We're, we're witnessing one of the obvious tragedies here is that tens of millions of people are losing their jobs, not only here in the United States, but you know, worldwide. And a lot of times, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, our our identity is closely a t- tied to you know what it is that we we do uh, for a living and you know, how much passion and joy and love uh, and that outlet that we have in our our places of work uh, is is something um, that that has to have an impact on someone's sense of identity, uh, which you you list as one of the core existential themes. What, why is identity so important and what can someone in this type of situation do to preserve and strengthen their basic sense of, of self? That's a great question. And, and yes, you're absolutely right. For many of us, uh, our, our professional aspect of our life comprises such a strong part of our identity. And some of us have been fortunate enough to be able to continue our professional capacity, although in modified ways and other folks, it's, it, it's a huge loss. Uh, and after acknowledging that and grieving that, I think one of the things that folks can do is try to broaden out their view of who they are in addition to their professional life. So in addition to what they might do for a career, for, for work, 
who else are they? Are they uh, a sibling? Are they a parent? Are they a child? Are they a friend? What are other aspects of their, how they derive who they are? Can they draw on right now? Can they invest a little bit more in uh, time with family and strengthen their sense of being a sibling or a, uh, or a partner? Can they draw more on uh, a hobby that they might, might have as if they view themselves as someone who enjoys woodworking or bird watching or singing? So just various aspects where we can kind of reshape uh, the narrative, the story that we tell ourselves about who we are to broaden it uh, beyond just the work that we do. The work that we do is important, but it's not all of who we are. And when I think about identity, I also think people also ascribe identities to ourselves, right? So there's a there's a cultural identity um, that people prescribe to homeless, to the people that uh, struggle with mental health, to the people that are in poverty. And I think that's the other piece is to look at our identity, one, from a cultural perspective, whether that's a sense of justice or not, but then two, from this internalized place, have we internalized some of these identities that aren't helpful or cause more harm that then can hurt us further? Um, and so one thing I do with all that, with quite a few clients that I work with is let's look at these prescribed identities and what do you think about them and what, how or not do you want to incorporate that into the story you tell yourself about who you are? And so I think about that one in your work with the most vulnerable, often culture has prescribed various meanings, you know, something I've been grieved about in this whole process is we, there's a collective sort of conversation going on about how much, how much is a life worth? And that's, that's prescribing an identity too, and like commodifying a life. And I think about that as it relates to the people that are the most vulnerable and how that must feel for them. You know, it's interesting. I have a, a medical condition that puts me actually high risk for this. And it's been interesting to hear people talk about how other people, how they talk about people with high risk conditions. Um, I'm fairly healthy and fairly active. And yet people will often talk about how we shouldn't protect those kinds of people or, you know, like all those kinds of things. And I think about that as related to my own identity, how, and it's been a challenge for me. How do I reject that or accept that? Or, you know, what do I do with it? It's been, it's, that's been a process for me too. Sarah, that's such an interesting point. Um, you know, you think about, you know, it seems to be worth in, in a time where, actuarial tables like the insurance companies use are coming into play where you're playing with the percentages of the population and who should be protected and what risks should be taken. Um, so you're right. That's really crushing. I, I, there's a quote in your book. It says a long line of research reveals that social exclusion is associated with myriad negative mental health symptoms, such as depression and meaninglessness. It can also cause people to act aggressively which may further isolate them when they lash out at those people in their lives who care deeply about them. I thought that was a really interesting point. Now, the, the title of your book, The Courage to Suffer, and by the way, there's so much in-depth material in this book, uh, and you're, you're stepping people through many uh, phases of uh, self-examination and, and progress in their own development, and it's, which can be quite challenging at times. The Salvation Army, of course, is dealing really in the immediate crisis and often what it does um, after 
um, initial contact, it then moves into a long-term recovery phase where it reaches out to help people economically, et cetera, socially, um, and, and work with other agencies to help people, you know, find other resources. But your title of the book, The Courage to Suffer, um, what, what in your view constitutes courage in light of the current pandemic? One of the, the first uh, things I think people can do to be courageous is to not avoid, to not ignore, to not numb, or to not deny the suffering uh, of the pandemic. So I think one thing that would constitute courage would be to think beyond just yourself. So people might be feeling healthy. People might be annoyed at that social distancing guidelines. They might want to rush to get life back to normal. But that might, that's probably not the best for all of us. That's probably not the best for the community at large or or folks who are more vulnerable. And so part of courage requires sitting with the distress, with the uh, discomfort of doing things that might not be in your best interest per se, but are, are in everybody's best interest. So staying indoors, socially isolating, thinking of other people. Um, I think that's one dimension that relatively anybody could enact that would be courageous. Yeah. I mean, I think about courage is it's not necessarily something that you don't experience with fear or anger. It's, it's somewhat of a, of a choice to sit in the uncomfortable. And I think this is a moment where for some people it feels too much for them. Like this is overwhelming. And that's when I would sort of say, and I think Daryl would say the same thing is that's the point when you can, you should reach out to other people, but it doesn't necessarily mean like you should avoid those feelings. Um, And that's, you know, we, we, I see this all the time in my work is, you know, we want to pathologize any kind of feeling that's other than happy. And that's just not the case. So uh, a buzzword that we keep hearing right now is, um, you know, this is the new normal. Um, and, and all of us want to get, want things to get back to normal, uh, whatever, whatever that normal looks like. And I know of people who have lost their jobs who are furloughed or whatever, but the opportunity and, and hope for them in the future of, of obtaining those jobs again is, is somewhat bleak, but is it, will things get back to normal? Is that, is that a realistic expectation? You know, I think the truth is suffering indelibly changes people. And so I guess the question I'd ask to each, any individual and everyone listening is, when you say that, what do you mean? Are you talking about a job? Are you talking about a role? Are you talking about a function, an identity, a sense of control? Or are we talking about our feeling? Like, I don't want to have to be anxious when I'm in a crowd of people. Those are two different answers, right? I think there is one sense of we won't go back to normal because things like this change people. And I think that's part of the point of our book is we have to integrate this into our identity rather than reject it. And so when we can integrate suffering as a part of our identity, as a a part of something we've experienced uh, into our narrative, then we are changed. And the beautiful thing that comes out of that is we have this, this moment to then use that for something. Now for people that have lost jobs and like that, that's, it's heartbreaking. And even in the midst of 
whether they get another job or in another industry, they'll always have this experience of this period of time of unknown, of things that totally were without their control. And so I guess I want to say and reiterate, it, it changes people. And that doesn't mean it's bad or wrong. It's, it's what happens. Yeah, Sarah, I really appreciate your emphasis on, you know, living authentically. And maybe this moment in time can help us to be more authentic, be more open, be more honest. We uh, interviewed the, uh, the writer of a book about, uh, about Fred Rogers, and she pointed out he, how he would say, there's nothing that uh, can, is beyond communication. In other words, taking steps to communicate what we're really feeling um, and, and experiencing is in the end extremely helpful for many, it's hard to get there. It's hard to break through that. Is there are there practical steps you could offer for that kind of communication? Yes, I think that the practical steps is really just looking at. Like I, I say, this we we need to understand our own limits, um, and that's not a bad thing. It's not bad to say this is really hard, and I don't know if I'm going to make it through. What I again, I, I'll go back to that. Like that's a fear. What's the, the fear in that is that I'm fragile. I can't make it through. And so what I'd ask the person, like if they were sitting in my office or I'm having a conversation with them, I'd ask them, can you identify not only the fear, but what's the love behind that fear, the sense of like you, you want and desire to be connected to others. And so can you look at what's happening, right? With acceptance rather than resistance. Like, I don't want this to be happening. It shouldn't be happening. That's, that's almost a different kind of suffering. It's like a torturing kind of suffering that can keep you in such a cycle of suffering, but rather, can you look at it? And when you look at it again, using it as information, can you then transform it in some way? So if you are struggling and it feels hopeless and you can't, uh, you're, you're afraid, uh, what's the thing that you need to do to provide that comfort to yourself? Uh, whether that's, again, using your fears as information, needing to reach out, needing to connect with other people, needing to write it down, write your feelings down. I think so much of our struggles as humans is our refusal um, that we even suffer at all. And so being able to sort of uh, use that as information, write it down, talk to people, um, even, you know, it's funny, our cat just jumped up on my lap. And so I'm holding (laughs) our cat now (laughs) as we're talking. And I even just, you know, like, I think that's the comfort I think about. I think about when we've reached our limits, I often teach my clients, uh, use, use grounding techniques. And what that means is things that provide comfort to your five senses, So touch, sound, taste, um, something that you can see. And so it's even as simple as finding a a blanket and having that that's warm and around you. And it's okay to cry. Um, It's finding something that, uh, again, my cat often gives it to me is just being able to hold him and, and pet him. It gives me that touch, but then also gives me the sound of him purring. Um, You know, can we, use those five senses to ground us when we become overwhelmed because we, we will, this is hard. It's hard work to look at something that we don't want to look at. We're um, interviewing 
some of the top leaders of the Salvation Army throughout the nation and asking them, you know, what's next? What are what are some of the next things that are happening? We also in our magazine kind of cover historical events. In the May issue, we talked about the uh, pandemic of um, 1918, what the Salvation Army did. We're looking at what the Salvation Army did to help people with the, the Great Depression. Um, you know, we, th- there was a whole new pour uh, that was established out of, out of that. And we kind of anticipate that there's a new, a new pour. You know, the, 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 the vulnerable will have a different look now. They may be people that are still in homes, but worry whether or not they're going to be able to stay in those homes, that kind of thing. Um, I, we, I really enjoyed talking with you today because both of you have highlighted some real human emotions. Um, and I think just talking with you, you've been able to capsulate uh, th- that it's, it's normal for us to be struggling with these things and that we shouldn't be shameful. Obviously we shouldn't get too far down the road, which will um, lead to more anxiety. What would be one uh, kind of one last piece of advice that you would give to our listeners about just surviving in these times? You know, one thing I I like to remind myself um, of when I, you know, can't sleep and staring out the window at two in the morning is we're, we're, we're resilient. Humans are really resilient. It's one of the things we do best is we we rebuild, we pick ourselves up, um, and we thrive. And so I would I would leave listeners with the reminder that uh, although we've maybe never faced this before, we faced things like this before, and we'll, we will get through this. Uh, but we have to get through it together we will be able to find a way forward. It may never look like the way it looked before. That's okay. It's really okay. But we will be able to get through this. But let's continue to think of each other as we do. Because I think a good mark of a flourishing society is really how all of the members of the society are able to flourish, especially those that are the the most vulnerable and most marginalized. Yeah, and I would say we're not in this alone. It, it feels like it, but it, both to the people that are suffer, suffering and the people that maybe haven't felt the sting of suffering as greatly, we all need each other. And so I would, we would, I would encourage people to, to look at the suffering and use that, uh, not as, like you said, not in a shameful way, but more as a transformative way. Well, Jeff, I found that a very enlightening uh, for me personally, a very enlightening uh, few moments of my time with uh, both of them. Yeah, I did too. I thought, you know, going in, I thought they'd talk about the big questions about the meaning of life, et cetera, but really they bring it down to the personal level and talk about, you know, what, what we can do to comfort ourselves and others in the, in the immediate situation we're in. Um, and I really appreciated their, their um, respect for people, especially for those on the fringes and the margins who really are enduring suffering uh, to a, a great degree. Well, I, I enjoyed their transparency, and especially uh, when she was when Sarah was talking about her cat, mm-hmm. and and then that the cat just appeared in this interview, and uh, and then at the same time, my dog ran through the basement here, and I was like, you know, it's it's a new normal. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. And yes. It, it allows us, uh, you know, reminding that uh, we're just, we're reminded that we're human, uh, that we're prone to suffer and that we can get through the suffering um, through so many different ways of acknowledgement and, and encouragement and being with other people. And hopefully coming out stronger, which I think is what they're, these authors uh, speak to. You know, whenever I'm talking to an author or writer, especially in the field of uh, psychology or counseling, I'm always reminded of that verse in Second Corinthians, where Paul reminds the readers there that, you know, sometimes we go through things in order to be able to empathize and, and be enabled to help other people get through it down the road in, in our lives. And that's been, that's been so true in my journey with Christ uh, along this way. Yeah. And we hope those people, all those Salvation Army officers and personnel out there who are really trying to help people um, in very practical ways, as well as spiritually and emotionally, find some uh, guidance in this, some, some, some support as well. Our, our prayers are certainly with them. Our prayers, and we're very proud uh, of the officers and soldiers and employees across this nation of what they continue to do to serve suffering humanity in these days. And we hope that both Daryl and Sarah's words are an encouragement uh, to you. Well, that's going to end this episode of the Fight for Good podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Fight for Good wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow the War Cry and Peer magazine on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Until next time, this has been the Fight for Good podcast. Stay safe, be kind to one another, listen to the authorities, and keep your hope alive in the truth of God's love for you. God bless you. Subscribe to Fight for Good wherever you listen to podcasts. 